Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We are here ahead of week nine of college baseball season. Joe, that's right. It's week nine, right? Uh, that is correct. Yeah, week week nine. I only know because I have to title the um, the podcast post every week. Otherwise, I would have no idea what week it is. But yes, we're we're looking at <laughs> we're looking at week nine of the college baseball season. There you go. It only took me eight and a half weeks to to really like start struggling with what week it is. All right, so it's week nine of college baseball. It's an exciting one. We have a lot of really good series to talk about, highlighted by a couple of in-state rivalries in the SEC, which also happened this year to be top 10 showdowns. So excited to talk about some of that stuff. We're going to hit on a little bit of NCAA uh, regulation news and a little bit of Field of 64 projection, because as Joe and I were just talking before we hit record on this, uh, we've reached an interesting time of year as it relates to creating projections for postseason and I uh, just wanted to take the uh, take the opportunity to talk you through a little bit of that. Uh, if you did happen to look at this week's Baseball America projected field of 64, so an exciting show, hopefully coming up here for you. And we're going to get into all of that here in a second. But first, the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. Repsoto National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. To check out the Repsoto National Player Database, go to repsoto.com slash national database. All right, Joe, uh, like I mentioned, got a couple newsier items to talk about here before we dive into the top series of the weekend. I think first, though, let's continue that discussion that we were kind of just having about projected field of 64 and how we look to create it this time of year. Um, if you haven't looked, it is on the website, baseballamerica.com. We have a new field this week, as we have for the last few weeks and will towards the till the end of the season. Uh, but this week, kind of all at once, Joe, just kind of flipped the switch from not paying that much attention to RPI, being generally aware of it, but not being too concerned about it as it related to hosts to being like rather interested in what the RPI is saying. And as a result, Arkansas is the number one overall seed. That's that's not surprising. That's not a change. But number two this week is Arizona. And I think it caught, well, I know it caught, I, I, I see you on Twitter and Instagram and everywhere else. Uh, it caught a lot of people off guard that Arizona would be the number two overall seed. And I'm not surprised by that. They're not in the top 10. Not only are they not in the top 10, our top 25, I don't think they're in anyone's top 10. Uh, that's a function of being a little inconsistent over the first month of the season, more than anything else. And I guess being just seven and five in the Pac-12, but more about early season inconsistencies, I think. Here's what Arizona is, though. They're right now in the top five in RPI. They have the number one strength of schedule in the country. They have eight wins away from Tucson. They're eight and four away from Tucson. And uh, we have them projected to win the Pac-12. So if you're looking at, at the end of the season, a Pac-12 champion that 
continues to win games away from Tucson, that strength of schedule probably won't be number one at the end of the day, but isn't going to fall precipitously. And as a top five RPI team, I I mean, maybe they're not number two, maybe they're number three, uh, but they're going to be very high on the seed list. And I, I understand how that snuck up on people. I, you know, I hadn't had them in a top eight seed before this week, but uh, Joe, I, I think it's time to uh, start paying a little bit more attention to the Wildcats. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, what I would describe it as is, is this is the time of year where when we start to look at these teams and look at postseason resumes and, and how all that shakes out, it's time to really deal with reality on reality's terms. Like what we think about these teams just from a subjective standpoint, like really doesn't matter. It's what the resume says. It's what the results say. The fact that we still have questions about will Arizona be able to pitch well enough to get all the way through to through into Omaha? Like that doesn't really matter. Like, I, I mean, yes, it matters whether they're going to win or lose games moving forward, but as far as, yeah, like, I mean, that matters for a different, conversation right exactly. that matters for a for omaha that doesn't matter for projected field of 64 right and, and when they get slotted into wherever they whether they're hosting or whatever it is when they get slotted into regional we'll have that discussion on those terms but as far as what we do field of 64 wise and how we project these teams out like that doesn't that those conversations kind of have to go away and so to your point you look at arizona and you look where the rpi is and you project that well we think this is a team that's going to win the pac-12 well then, okay. Now we're now we have to deal with that as opposed to dealing with the team that that you know we still have some questions about in a way that we don't necessarily with Arkansas, for example. Uh, or you know, uh, there are, there are even teams I think that are in that range with Arizona that I think we're maybe a little more certain about. But you know, Arizona's resume stacks up, and you could do this at, at all levels, right? I mean, I don't think you know there are probably some doubters, probably not as many as you might think, because I think we everybody saw how well they played. Arkansas and Ole Miss earlier this season and the way they're dominating their competition. But there are probably some people who really wonder if Louisiana Tech is good enough to be solidly in as a host. And the, but the resume says they are. And so that's kind of, you know, that, that's the way we, we have to play it. And, I, you know, I, I, it, it is around this time of year, every year that we, that we do this. And there are examples and every year of kind of where we have to kind of reevaluate the way we think about a team. Uh, you and I have talked about Louisville. Louisville is kind of a hot topic in college baseball right now because the RPI just isn't where it's supposed to be. And we have confidence that it will be where it's supposed to be. But if it doesn't get there and Louisville drops some games, it shouldn't down the stretch. Like we could be having a different conversation because I'll tell you what, like, even if we have them ranked, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that you never hear on the selection show <laughs> is, well, this team was ranked in the top 15 all year. So, you know, we, we, we put them in as a host or, you know, we put them in as a two seed as opposed to being on the bubble out because they were ranked in the top 15. That is something you never hear on the show. So that is not a talking point when it comes right down to it in the field of 64. So that those are the types of differences in discussion that we have to have this time of year versus the way we talk about teams four weeks ago, because we spend a lot of time early in the season saying, ah, it's too early for RPI. It's too early for this, too early for that. Well, we're there now. It's not too early for that. You can take it with a little, still a bit of a grain of salt, but it is part of the conversation now. Now I hope that, so to, to, to get to Louisville, cause that is a significant thing, because if I'm going to sit here and say, I flipped the switch to where RPI matters and, then you look down and you see Louisville as the number four overall seed or five, wherever I put them. Um, 
and, and then you look at their RPI and it says 64 and you're like, well, you're, you, you can't have it both ways. Like, okay, yeah, I haven't totally flipped the switch, I guess yet, but here's the thing about Louisville. They are 20 and 10, but 12 and five in the ACC. And they are somehow 64th in RPI. Now, how are they 64th in RPI? One, their strength of schedule is very poor. Uh, that is partially because of a greater ACC RPI issue that we'll get to in a second. Uh, part of it's because Louisville didn't schedule well. And they have not played much on the road. They're five and five on the road. Uh, it's kind of strange that Louisville didn't play more on the road. They typically would have played opening weekend on the road. Instead, this year, they chose to play Bellarmine. Uh, new to Division One, Bellarmine. Local to them, Bellarmine. But still, like that was not a sound RPI decision. It was probably a sound decision for any number of other reasons. But from an RPI standpoint, that was not a sound decision. Then they played Western Illinois at home. Again, questionable from an RPI standpoint, although not out of character for Louisville. Uh, and then they bothered to lose one of those games. And that was uh, an especially bad idea, I would suggest. But even beyond that, the ACC as a whole, despite the fact that we keep talking about how deep it is, how good it is, the ACC has two top 20 teams right now in, in RPI. That's Notre Dame, which played an inordinate amount of road games already, obviously. And it's Pitt, which also has played a million road games. RPI is not handling the fact that the ACC has not played many non-conference games well at all. That's not particularly surprising. That's not what it's designed to do, but it is really messing with the ACC right now. I am hopeful, hopeful that the selection committee looks at all the irregularities of this season, considers what the RAC, the regional advisory committees are going to tell them about teams like Louisville and says, look, this doesn't match up, but this season is weird. The RPI is off for these reasons. And the reasons are that the ACC is super insular right now. Um, we, we give the Big Ten a lot of stink for playing conference-only schedules. Well, the ACC is only slightly better. Like, yes, they allowed them to play non-conference schedules, but they didn't really allow them to play enough. By taking six games away, they're really hurting themselves from an RPI standpoint. And I hope that the committee can take all of that information in and come out with an idea like that, okay, the ACC champ, that has X, Y, and Z on its resume that Louisville will have. And again, this is projecting Louisville as the ACC champ. That, that they have all these things, we would reward them commiserately in a normal year. I am not saying that you know I want the committee to just fall back on historical means. I am just saying I want them to open their eyes and not their RPI sheet and evaluate teams like Louisville, teams like Florida State, Teams like Georgia Tech, I want them to be evaluated the way they normally would be as, as much as, as well as you can possibly approximate this. This is why there's a committee and not just a computer. So I don't care that the computer number doesn't line up for Louisville. I, I know what, how good Louisville is. 
And even if I'm wrong right now and like we have them too high at number two, like I also know that they're not 64. I know that they should be hosting. I think everyone can come to that conclusion. So where you line them up between five and 13, I don't know how much it really matters, but like hopefully they line up somewhere in there, assuming that they end up with uh, with that ACC title. I mean, this year with a, with the host being decided earlier, you know, hope, again, hopefully they can figure that out, that, that Louisville, assuming they continue to lead in the ACC, uh, you know, hopefully all of that comes together for them. On the other hand, this is the selection committee, and they often very heavily rely on RPI. And so to expect them to understand the nuance this year, I don't know how much faith we should have in that. Uh, and that's something that I'm going to grapple with for the next few weeks uh, until the committee selects those sites. Yeah, we talked a few weeks ago about this kind of topic. I don't know how it came up, but maybe we just kind of got on a tangent about it. But, you know, I looked at the way the basketball field was was chosen and kind of thought, well, you know, if, if we're looking for the baseball committee to really kind of go rogue, if you will, and and do as you suggest they should do, and I agree with you, and kind of look at it beyond the traditional metrics, like the way the basketball field seemed to be chosen wasn't necessarily um, – they didn't do that. And it felt like a very normal process in basketball. So it felt like maybe not a good harbinger of things to come for the baseball selection. But if you're looking for a reason for optimism, why they might have to, I think you have the ACC to thank for that because they're going to have to kind of make a choice. Let's assume, I think we can assume that Louisville's RPI is going to come down some just by nature of they're going to continue winning these games. And I mean, they can get to the top 32, but typically to be a host from a conference like the ACC, you need to be 20. 23 around there you need to be in the top 20 to 23 and it's a it's gonna be a hard run to that level no doubt so like that that's kind of what i'm saying is like it's gonna improve some but they're gonna have to reach for louisville to host and so if they do that let's say you know you brought up a couple good examples like a team like georgia tech for example um you know let's say their rpis in the high forties. And typically in the league, like the ACC, that would usually put you bubble out in a normal year. So are you going to, if you have Louisville hosting with a 34 RPI, then does that make Georgia tech a two, or does that make Georgia tech bubble out like a normal year, or are they going to throw that all out and, and kind of just be a little more um, picky and choosy about where they see these ACC teams and kind of ignore the RPI. That'll be fascinating. And it's something that, like I said, if they go straight RPI, the ACC is probably in some trouble here. Um, so th- I think they're going to have to choose between either that or really kind of throwing that out and just seeding it based on on what they they feel like is the right way to do it. It's kind of crazy here that you know the Pac-12, which is supposed to be the conference that was really hampered RPI-wise by what's happened by not playing outside their own region. The it was supposed to be the West Coast schools that really got got hosed by the RPI this year. That's the way it typically is anyway. And this year was supposed to exacerbate it. And yet here they are with two top five teams at this point in the season. And uh, here the ACC is with two teams in the top 20. Uh, yeah, so I mean, like, like you said, Joe, that either they're going to have to reckon with the ACC and they're going to have to reckon with the fact that this conference, which traditionally is thought of as the second best conference in the country for baseball which is having seemingly a pretty good year on the diamond like it's not a year in which 
we're looking around and saying, wow, where are all the good ACC teams? Like, why is there no talent in this league? Like the regional advisory committees are going to turn in ACC teams really high. Uh, they're going to have to, they're going to have to grapple with that. And hopefully that makes them grapple with the entirety of the field and not just with the ACC. The one thing I will say before we can move on here is that in terms of the, uh, the rest of them, how, how they'll handle teams outside the host line, how they'll handle teams in terms of bubble in, bubble out. Uh, the bubble looks bad this year, and I don't think there's – I don't know how, how it's going to get saved. So even if they they look at it and say, like, ah, sorry, Louisville, your RPI is not there, you're not hosting this year, I don't think they can also look at it and say, like, well, you know, normally, guys, RPIs in the 40s wouldn't cut it from the ACC. It's going to be – be hard to come up they got to have 64 teams joe i mean we got to remember this it's a 64 team field okay. got to get to 64 you got to have in this season 34 non-conference team or 34 uh out-large teams to get to 34 out-large teams if you're just gonna eliminate half of the acc because their rpi is bubbly uh it, it would be a struggle Indeed. Yeah, I'm checking with our fact checkers, and they say that's true. 64 teams in the field and 34 at-large bids, so you, you're good on that. That is true. All like right. You said. I mean, unless they want to put in, like, right now, Air Force, 13 and 12, 7 and 8 in the Mountain West. No disrespect to, to Air Force, but, like, that's that's a top 40 RPI team right now, and uh, maybe it'll last, maybe it won't last, but they've played enough road games that it might. Yeah, I mean, that, there are certainly some teams in that range to, that have a lot to gain. I mean, you know, obviously, as time goes on, we'll talk about some of these, but, you know, USC Upstate at 31 in RPI that has seven losses in the Big South. Like, usually to be that high in RPI, you've got to have fewer than seven losses in a league like the Big South. And so if, if, if the committee wants to go that route and really follow the RPI, there are certainly some mid and low majors that are going to be in, uh, in, in, in luck. Come on down at large rider. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, that's, that's where team. we're at. So, yeah. I mean, it's uh, some of this is still going to normalize, but we also are at a point in the season where I can't just sit here and say, like, well, it'll all normalize out. It'll be fine. Like, uh, some of this goofiness is here to stay. Like, the that's, yeah. that's the reality. The, the goofiness that's here to stay, well, the, the goofiness that we no longer have is the goofiness for no good reason. Like, teams can move, but now teams are going to have to move based on their own kind of wins and losses. It's no more like, oh, this team just dropped 40 spots and didn't even play, like that kind of stuff. Like that is mostly yes. gone now. Yes. All right. Um, we'll definitely continue talking about the field of 64 and the projections and uh, ultimately the field over the next couple months. So we'll uh, we'll leave that there. I wanted to briefly touch on this, Joe. I Nobody wants to talk about transfers on a podcast, I don't think, uh, or the one-time transfer waiver rule on a podcast. Certainly, I don't. I've been writing about transfer reform in the NCAA for four years now, and I don't even, I haven't even had this job that long, and like, I'm sick of it. I can only imagine what people that have been doing this a lot longer than me uh, feel about it, because transfers in baseball and whether they need to sit out a year or not has been a hot topic for the entirety of the 21st century. Hopefully now it's going to be coming to an end this week. As we recorded this on Wednesday, it has not happened yet, but the Division I Council uh, is meeting this week and they are expected to finally pass the one-time waiver for all athletes to transfer without sitting out a season. 
this was expected to be passed a year ago, and then the pandemic happened, and there were other NCAA legislative priorities it got pushed. It was expected to be passed then in January. Then the NCAA freaked out when the Justice Department told them that their proposed name, image, and likeness rule changes would violate antitrust laws. And even though the Justice Department told them that the transfer stuff was not a part of that, the NCAA, again, uh, decided to delay the vote on transfer stuff. That vote's happening this week. Everyone expects it to pass. If it doesn't pass, uh, well, you can ignore this, I guess, and we'll uh, we'll clean that up uh, uh, next week. But the the much-anticipated, much-waited-for transfer reform does seem to to be finally upon us, Joe, and we'll definitely dissect this more over the summer, what it means for the entirety of the country if uh, if every player can transfer and be immediately eligible once. Uh, but you spent a lot of time with our transfer tracker over the summer. What what do you think of, uh, of the, the fact that the, this rule change does seem to be finally coming to pass? I think it's a good change. I mean, is it going to create chaos in the transfer portal? Absolutely. But, you know, we're in a, we're talking about college baseball being a sport where there are really no such thing as full scholarships. Um, and there's a lot of players who are on very little aid and could really use it. Uh, and let's not ignore the fact that circumstances change. And I don't just mean playing time, you know, uh, family circumstances change. Maybe, you know, you've got a family that thought they could afford to let, let their son go play on a 25% at a private school. And it turns out a year later, they can't, you know, like that's the reality here we're dealing with when you're, when these students oftentimes and their families are, are paying, having to find other ways to finance an education. So that's, that's point one for me when we talk about a sport like, like this, where that the scholarship situation is where it is. And also I just think there's a lot of hand wringing in college athletics about how we're rewarding impatience and rewarding narcissism, uh, for players wanting to transfer and look, are there going to be players who transfer because they, they, they want to pout about not being treated the way they want to be treated. Sure. But like, I don't think we should restrict that player and try to punish that player at the expense of a really hardworking player who it just hasn't worked out. He can't get on the field. Um, he changed, he wants to go back home. He, all these good valid reasons why a student, a, mind you, a 19, 20 year old student, might want to change schools. I just don't think we should restrict that player for fear of the one guy who was coddled in, you know, use all the buzzwords you want to use here. He was coddled in, um, you know, showcase ball and was told he was all that and was told that he was the next big thing, the best thing since sliced bread. Like, okay, that yeah, maybe, okay. That it sucks that that kid, you know, maybe gets to transfer and, and gets again, gets to be a little bit coddled in the system. But I don't think we should be so worried about that, that we don't let these other kids, transfer freely. So I think it's a, it's a positive. Does it make coaches jobs harder? Sure. But you know, uh, I'm not saying I would want to do that job based on having free transfers, but this is what they get paid for. You know, this is, this is part of the business. It's part of the job. And I think the, the coaches who are very good at their jobs, who run very good programs, who are very successful, probably really aren't going to have to worry about this much because the kids they're going to lose are the kids who haven't been able to play and haven't had the opportunities because there are better players in front of them. And in those types of programs, losing those types of players aren't necessarily earth shattering. So that's, um, I just think it's a positive all around. The thing, the, the one area where I think it is unfortunate is that there are going to be players who commit 
to low and mid-major schools, outperform that school's talent level generally, air quote, as much of that as you want to, like just outperform expectations. And suddenly a, a, a player that didn't have as many options as they were hoping to out of high school suddenly has major conference potential. And that that player then leaves a smaller school for a bigger school. That is going to be somewhat unfortunate. That is going to be a reality. Um, you know, I don't know if Colton Kowser would have exercised that if he would have looked around after his freshman season at Sam Houston State, but you know, he made the collegiate national team the following year. Uh, clearly, he could have played for any team in the country. And, you know, as it was, he stayed at Sam and maybe that would have been the decision if he didn't have to sit out a year, but maybe if he didn't have to sit out a year, he would have gone down the road to AM or to UT or to whoever, uh, uh, just to name one player that, you know, clearly, uh, you know, surprised some folks in, in, in his freshman year. You know, we've been down this road with baseball before. There's a lot of people that have been in the game a really long time that remember when uh, coaches recruited Cape Cod League for those kinds of players. And, you know, there this time should be some ways to stop that from happening. Hopefully, uh, players are probably going to have to inform their current school of their intention to transfer the date that has been thrown around to this point. Uh, it's been July 1. Again, we're recording before the vote happens. I don't know what the ultimate timeline will be. My personal preference, nobody asked me, but my personal preference would be to tie it to the end of your end of the season, like two weeks after the end of the season. I understand that creates more paperwork headache for the NCAA probably, but you know, as it stands, the end of the 2021 college baseball season is like a day before that deadline. So you know, if you wanted to transfer and your team is one of the last two teams standing, uh, you're going to be going to be up against that deadline there. And, uh, you know, I, ideally that doesn't affect many guys, but, um, you know, it'll affect some, I'm sure, I guess it is literally the, the season ends this year on the 30th. Uh, so the deadline would be that day for them. I don't know that that doesn't seem great, but, you know, hopefully, so some stuff around that can be worked out and um, you, know, you don't have to worry too much about guys going up to, to the Cape and, or not, get, not being allowed to go to the Cape by their current head coach for fear of losing them. All those games that used to got, get played uh, before baseball got lumped in uh, with the likes of football and basketball 10 years ago. So we'll see where that goes. Ultimately though, e even with, those players moving up to different opportunities, I would say, yeah, it's, it's not great for the school. It's unfortunate that you were right on the kid in terms of recruiting and then you developed him and you helped him get there and now you're losing him. But also like that's life, I guess, in so many ways, like, I don't know if, uh, you know, a law firm has you and then a bigger law firm comes along with a, a better opportunity. I, I would think that a lot of people would, would take that, take that plunge, you know, that they would want to see what it was like, or, you know, name any career field, you know, that that's, that's a pretty standard thing that happens to adults around the country all the time, including coaches. And so to expect 
players to not operate in that way just because it maybe is a little unseemly or, or maybe hasn't happened before. Um, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't really seem right that you know we should be encouraging people to to reach for their their dreams and challenge themselves and all the all those other things that that you tell young people. So I think that kind of falls into into line with with that. If uh, you know if you're at a mid major school, but what you really want is is the next challenge. Well, now maybe you can go get it. And and I think that should be I don't know applauded might be strong, but maybe not encouraged, but certainly understood. That's an understandable emotion, at least to me. Agreed. And that's, you know, I think that's the big fear with this rule as well. You know, you do all the legwork to get this kid and, and you, you know, you lose him after one standout year. And like, I would, I would agree with you. Like that does, that is kind of a bummer on some cases, certainly me as, as a guy who appreciates the low and mid-major level, uh, that it, that would be a bummer. Uh, however, it is reality. And also what I would say is I think sometimes we also, there are certain kids that would want to do that. We, I mean, we even with, with the idea that they might have to, to sit before grad transferring, I mean, we see this with grad transfers, you know, fairly often. So there are those kids out there that want to do that. But I do think sometimes we overestimate how much the average player really wants to bother with transferring. They're at that school for a reason. And oftentimes it's because they're at the school that gave them the best offer, right? Or the, the highest level they could achieve. But it's also because they were comfortable with the coaches. It's close to home. Uh, it's a winning program at the mid-major level. Uh, they're friends with their teammates, you know, uh, all of those reasons that an 18 year old would choose to go play somewhere. Are uniforms. Like, the uniforms. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And a lot, the facilities, you know, all that kind of stuff. Heck academics for that matter. Like sometimes we over, we roll our eyes sometimes at the student athlete deal, but like that is a real thing, especially in a sport like baseball where, you know, um, there just isn't the spotlight there is in some other college sports. So I think sometimes we overestimate how much, outside of just a really small group of players, um, how much the average player really wants to bother with transferring because they're where they are for a reason in a lot of cases. And so, um, yeah, maybe it'll be a complete free for all. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but, but I do think maybe it is one of those things that might end up being a little bit much ado about, about nothing. I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen the most recent numbers, but generally the transfer rate, including junior college, transfers just the the overall number of players in college baseball that have transferred at one point in their career is like north of 20 but less than 25 i don't know why i said it that way somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of players already have transferred it's going to go up so i mean i, I guess sure. this is all relative but it, it's going to creep closer to a third i would guess at least yeah probably so and we'll have to, i mean I, I i there's part of me that like is exhausted already thinking about trying to keep up with rosters, but there, there is another part of me that is kind of excited to see what, what becomes of it. Um, Cause it'll just add a fascinating layer. The off season, uh, it'll add another element to the off season. That is 100% certain. And we will talk more about it then I am sure of it. Uh, but for now, we're going to get to these week nine games here coming up in a second, but first check this out. All right, Joe, we've reached the part of the, the weekly show where we bear down on some of the, the most intriguing, notable games of the weekend. I pick four, then you pick another one, uh, and we, uh, we hash out what are the key, what, what, what the series is going to swing on, what, what the keys are for, for these teams to win. And we are going to start with a showdown in the Magnolia State. It is the Baseball Egg Bowl. And that is Ole Miss headed to Starkville to play Mississippi State. 
the top 10 showdown. These are the teams that are currently number two and number three in the SEC West standings behind number one, Arkansas. Uh, they are, they're tied, I, excuse me, at, at eight and four there. They've, they've arrived at that eight and four mark in a little different ways. Uh, Ole Miss has now lost consecutive series at Florida and then home to Arkansas. No real shame in either of those series losses, but still a couple tough series losses for the Rebs. And now Mississippi State coming in, they uh, they were swept by Arkansas two weeks ago, but since then they reeled off back-to-back sweeps of Kentucky and Auburn, two of the teams that are in the bottom half of the SEC. So this is now, I'm looking to find out a little bit more about the Bulldogs because we saw them saw them look not very good against the best team. And now we've seen them look pretty good against two of the teams that are not very clearly not the best team in the conference. So what, what do they look like against uh, another high end competitor in the, in the sec? That's where we're going to get this weekend at the new dude. Yeah. Battle for uh, uh, say, bless you to your, uh, to your, your dog there in the background, by the way, I so my dog is struggling with some, uh, some coughing right now. That's, okay, that's I, I couldn't tell if it was a sneeze. Like maybe she got some upper snout or something there. But uh, either way, I hope she's hope she's uh, doing okay back there. Um, but yeah, battle for second in the SEC West. Um, so it's certainly uh, just in a, from a very base level SEC standings um, perspective. That's that's what this is. Um, I I think it's an interesting matchup. Um, you know. I think Mississippi State pitching versus the Ole Miss offense, I think, is is interesting to me. Um, it's a Mississippi State pitching staff. But the last time we saw them come up against a a really good team, and that was in the Arkansas series, uh, didn't look like the Mississippi State pitching staff that, that we had thought it was kind of cracked up to be necessarily. Um, now, you know, the Arkansas offense can obviously make a very good pitching staff look pretty average on their best days. So there, there's also that element. But, uh, you know, the Ole Miss offense – while having its own question marks, you know, the first weekend without Tim Elko against Arkansas went pretty well, I would say, but still a lineup with questions given that its best bat is out of lineup right now. Um, so that, that's kind of an interesting contrast and matchups there where we, we have questions about maybe the Mississippi State pitching staff against some of the best teams it's going to come up against. We also have questions about the Ole Miss lineup and what they're going to be able to do long term more than just a small sample without Tim Elko. So it kind of feels like a, a something's got to give there situation. Um, but the, the other thing is too, is with Mississippi state, um, you're always, I think it's been a season long thing where we kind of squint and look at the offense and say like, is this, is this lineup good? Like, is it, you know, cause like it, it has the makings of being good and boy, Tanner Allen sure swinging it well. And there are moments for Cameron James or Rowdy Jordan or, you know, Luke Hancock, whoever else, but like on the whole, sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what it's all adding up to. And, and again, they, they looked pretty good last weekend, but that's not really necessarily going to be easy to match against a pitching staff led by Hoagland and Nikhazy, who I think um, will be extremely motivated to be better this week because, um, you know, neither of them were at the, their very best last weekend um, numbers wise. So um, just a, a whole different deal for the Mississippi state lineup that, that again, you know, we're nine weeks, the ninth week into the season and we're, and we're still not quite exactly sure what to make of that unit. Yeah, it's uh, it's intriguing because I'm inclined to say that runs will be at a premium. That you know, you look at the Mississippi State pitching staff and it looks pretty good, and you look at Hoagland and Nikhazy, and 
uh, to Broadway at the back end. And that's pretty good. But, you know, at the same time, like I just saw what happened a week ago to both of these teams, uh, you know, Mississippi state gave up a, a decent number of runs against Auburn, which is not, it's not like Auburn's a bad hitting team. Uh, but, but I'm, I'm also aware that, you know, they're, they can swing the bats a little bit and uh, you know, they, they got to the Mississippi state pitching staff a little bit. And then obviously Arkansas got to the Ole Miss staff. And so, you know, maybe, maybe there'll be some more runs than, than we're looking for, but I think, Pitching is going to be the key for both of these teams this weekend. I, I don't think you're wrong about, you know, this is kind of a like, okay, so that was one week without Oko. Like now let's do it again. Uh, and, and oh, by the way, now you're doing it on the road for, for the Rebs. But I, I think, you know, it's important. I, I keep saying that Hoagland and Nikhazy aren't that far off of being the best one to in the country you know, I don't, I don't care what Rocker and Leiter are doing. Like I, you know, Hoagland and Casey, they're really good too. Uh, you know, let's not overlook them. I, I can keep saying that, but I, at some point they got to they gotta step that up a little bit or else I, I need to stop saying that they're, they're having very good seasons. Um, but they're, you know, that we're talking about ERAs in the, the two and a half range for both of them, as opposed to, you know, a, a run off of that. Um, and, and, you know, Nikhazy hasn't been, you know, he, he's been at, out of the, the rotation at times due to some health stuff. And uh, he's back now and, and, and should be fully, fully ready to go and everything. But, you know, they, they do need to show it at some point that they can really put together, you know, the two of them back to back outstanding, outstanding starts. And this would be an outstanding weekend for that to happen. It also should be said that this is a series that has been dominated by Mississippi State in recent seasons, but that Jake Mangum is no longer there. And so Mangum basically didn't lose to Ole Miss, uh, but now this this will be the first time that they meet without him in the Mississippi State lineup. So, uh, you know, is did he leave some of the magic behind? Did he not? I don't know, uh, but it is going to be a different looking series without him. Uh, at the center of it all. It's funny you mentioned Hoagland and Nikhazy and talk about that. Cause I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like it's, you know, there, there's a, just a different echelon you have to jump to in order to be the, you know, the, the best one, two punch in the, in the nation. And, and then of course, by extension, that would make those two pitchers two of the best in the nation period full stop. And they, they're not, they haven't been quite there. So that totally valid point, but it is interesting. Like part of it is because these two programs are so, they're so well covered, right? Like they both have fans are really into it. They're both covered well by local beat writers. They're covered nationally because they're both relevant that, you know, sometimes it can feel like some of the narrative around the teams gets like a little far away from like the reality of the situation. And so there's stuff like, you know, worry about the Ole Miss Sunday starter, which is, which is valid. Um, But there's worry about uh, the Ole Miss lineup without Elko. There's worry about Mississippi state pitching staff. Like, is it as good as it looked the first five, six weeks of the season. But then the reality is like, okay, those might be, some of those might be legitimate flaws. And yet these are probably still two of the best five or seven teams in college baseball. These are probably still teams that are going to have real shots to get Domaha come June. And so like, I'm not saying anybody's wrong for like having little nitpick worries here and there um, because there have been times where both of these teams have had weekends where we've kind of gone like, Ooh, that was, that was ugly. But um, they've arrived, both arrived in a place where like ultimate goals for both these teams are still very much in view and very achievable. And um, 
So, you know, I, I say all that to say that is it, it is interesting that, you know, we have some of these like little worries about these teams, but in the grand scheme, if you just kind of dropped us in and, and gave us the raw data on how these teams are playing, we, I think we, we both agree that, um, you know, it's, it's right on track with where they kind of thought we'd, they'd be. Yeah. I think that's a good point that, you know, the, there's a lot of attention on them. There's a lot of expectations on them, but in balance, like these are teams that are eight and four in the sec. Uh, they both have 25 wins. Like these are teams having very good years. Yes. You can, you can nitpick them if you want. And Lord knows I've done so, but uh, they are, they are good teams. And this is going to be a great series that should be a lot of fun in Starkville this weekend. All right, let's head a little north and let's go to Tennessee where the, the balls are newly into the top five, the Baseball America top 25, and they welcome to town the Commodores of Vanderbilt. This is, in my belief anyway, I, I, I guess I could reasonably stand to be corrected by somebody, but I, I don't think so. I think it's fair to say this is the biggest weekend in this rivalry's history. I mean, these are two outstanding teams and they're they're both sitting here in the top five and uh, or in the top 10 rather. And, and it, you look at what Tennessee has done to this point in the season and they lead the nation with 28 wins. They are tied for first place with Vanderbilt at nine and three in the SEC East. I don't know how much more we could have asked of Tennessee to this point. I know that there are some doubts and, you know, that really just stems from where Tennessee has been over the last decade plus. Uh, but they are, they are everything that they could have been asked to be to, to this point. And Vanderbilt coming off of that upset loss in the series against Georgia, very confounding series loss in which they gave up 25 runs uh, to the dogs. They're going to be looking to get back on track. I don't think they needed the extra motivation of this being the the series against their in-state rivals, who they haven't lost to since 2016, but or lost a series to since 2016. But if they needed it, uh, now Georgia may have may have potentially woken them up. We'll find out this weekend. I mean, it stands to reason this would be the the, the most important series between these two, just because. You know, Vanderbilt was really getting going right about the time Tennessee was fading as a as a national power, and and I so, don't think those two things are unrelated. It certainly, it certainly, uh, yeah, exactly. Like two ships passing in the night, you might say, uh, which is funny because Commodores get it. Um, so that <laughs> was an accident, but but yeah, so those things are are probably in part related. But it does anyway. It just does stand a reason that you know this would be the biggest because those two programs were kind of going in different directions at that at that time. So. That is, um, that is probably true. All eyes are, I think, early in this series, there's going to be a lot of eyes on Kamar Rocker. There's been talk, obviously, last few weeks about his maybe concerns about his velocity being a little bit down. But the results have been excellent up until last weekend when, as we talked about in the, in the recap podcast, he still struck out a ton of guys but was getting hit a little bit. And so I think there's just going to be a lot of eyes on him early in the rotation. I think I might actually be more interested, though, just generally – in seeing, you know, what this Tennessee pitching staff and the matchup with the Vanderbilt offense looks like. Cause I think we've actually, because we've been understandably so fixated on rocker and lighter and like who wouldn't be right. We've maybe undersold how good this 
Vanderbilt offense. And by we, I mean, like you and I have talked about it, but I just mean like, you know what I mean by that? Like I think nationally it's been a little bit undersold how good this Vanderbilt offense has been. However, interestingly, really since they've gotten into SEC play, um, you know, South Carolina, and again, we got pretty distracted by the lighter, no hitter. And I, you know, rocker pitched really well in that series, but South Carolina's pitching limited Vanderbilt's offense a little bit. And that's a good pitching staff. Um, they had success against Missouri and against LSU. And remember that was LSU. And they caught Jaden Hill right before Jaden Hill went down for the year with, with injury. Um, so they, they had some success against LSU, but now they face against a Georgia team and like Georgia put a lot of runs on them. And that I think got a lot of attention, but also, you know, Vanderbilt scored quick math here, eight runs in those three games against Georgia. And I think we think of Georgia as a little more of a pitching outfit than, than an offense outfit. And so I'm not sure where Tennessee, like I, I'm not enough of a savant to be able to tell you exactly where I would place Tennessee's pitching staff in the hierarchy of SEC staffs, but I would say it's a little bit on the better side, especially with what they've accomplished this year. And so I think that'll kind of be interesting because I think it'll tell us a little bit about what we think ultimately of Vanderbilt's offense. I, I guarantee you it's good offense, but is it, you know, a great offense uh, like we've seen in spurts, or is it just a very good offense that against good pitching can be limited a little bit? And I think I'm going to be a little bit fascinated to see how that plays out. Well, the uh, it's funny you mentioned that Tennessee ranks 25th in the nation in, uh, in the RA. You can maybe subtract a couple of the NAAC teams if you wanted to Fairfield and Monmouth. Um, saying like, ah, it's only 14 games or like, ah, it's only conference competition, not very good conference competition, but regardless, you're not going to, you're going to struggle to get Tennessee into, into the top 20 nationally, but you don't have to, I mean, top 25 nationally Vanderbilt number six nationally. uh, These are two of the better pitching staff. And, you know, I've talked before about how well Tennessee uh, under Tony Vitello and Frank Anderson manage their pitching staff. So I, I think that they're going to create some matchup problems uh, or, or going to find some matchup problems for Vanderbilt this weekend it, and that offense, which, yeah, I mean, to your point, it, it hasn't been you know, some of the, the big, big numbers on that Vanderbilt offense, you know, date back to, to some non-conference action more than anything else. They're, they're a good solid offense, but they are, they're, they're not running out eight, nine runs a game in, in SEC competition. I mean, that would be rare and unusual if they were, but they're, they're certainly not. So I, I think that that's a, that's a fair thing to look at here. And then, you know, on the flip side, Tennessee, I mean, its offense isn't high power. It's been a very uh, team pitching when it's right is sometimes challenging because you've got a high-end defense and a good pitching staff that isn't going to give you a ton to work with, I wouldn't think. So, you know, in, in terms of free bases, you know, Tennessee's not going to have, have a lot of those. They're going to need to make some of their own their own chances. They do a good job of that with stolen bases. Um, you know, they have a lineup that has a lot of guys that can hit the ball out of the park, even if they don't have a big-time slugger. In, in the middle of it all, like a, like a Dominic Keegan, they have, I mean, I guess he only has six home runs. They have, they have guys that can do that, but they, they don't have a Wes Clark, I guess, is, is the guy I should be, be saying that the Tennessee doesn't have. So they're going to need some of that group offense, some of that action on the bases to make things happen this weekend, because I, I just don't think this is going to be a, 
a time where they get a whole lot of, of free 90 feeds from uh, from the Vanderbilt pitching staff. We talked about on the recap podcast, it's, it's not really fair that we keep asking Tennessee to prove itself over and over and over again. But I, I think this weekend, if they can win this series, is the weekend when that, for the, for the casual observer um, or the people who just really haven't been tuned into it, I think that's where it changes because it is a brand name in Vanderbilt. So fair or not, I think this is this weekend with a series win, I think that's when the, that, that worm will turn for Tennessee. I would agree. And, you know, they want that not just to silence whatever critics they have, but also because they haven't won a series in this rivalry since 2016. So a uh, big moment for the volunteers this weekend. All right, let's, uh, let's switch things up. Let's go to the big 12. We talked a little bit about this on the recap. We probably don't need to hit it with a crazy intensity as a result, but it is a top 20 series as Oklahoma state heads down to Fort worth. As we detailed on Monday, the big 12 race has really tightened up. you got four teams within two games in the loss column of each other. Tennessee and Oklahoma state are a part of that or TCU and Oklahoma State, rather, are a part of that. TCU coming off of that series loss in Lubbock. They're coming home with a chance to get right against the Pokes. And uh, they they could really use that, you know, just having lost the series in Lubbock the way they did. Extra innings on Saturday and then run ruled on Sunday. A chance to uh, to wash that out of their mouth with a what would be a pretty good series win would be would be big time for them. The Pokes, meanwhile, they, uh, they're they jumping back into Big 12 play after sweeping UNC Wilmington last weekend. Uh, and uh, they to, to they are the team that we have pegged as the fourth best of the group in the Big 12 behind Texas Tech and TCU. Uh, so this would be a chance to, I guess, silence us, force us to think about them differently. And uh, would be a pretty important thing for the Big 12 race and for the hosting race as well, because I don't think all four of these Big 12 teams are going to host. So finishing in the top three or or convincing the committee you are one of the three best in the Big 12 uh, seems significant. Yeah, it it really is a big opportunity for Oklahoma State, I think. I think they can, I think think even if they they lose this series, it doesn't really change much about what I think we will think of them uh, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, however, a series win, I, I do think will maybe change the perception and, and kind of change the math in the, in the big 12. And we'll probably be having a conversation on the recap podcast about what it means within the confines of the, the big 12 race, because it seems like, you know, when you've only got these four teams that and you wrote, you wrote about this actually just as a quick plug for your, your field of 64, you just put out as you know, today, Wednesday, as we record, there really kind of seems like there's just these four teams in the big 12 that have really separated themselves. And so when that's the case, any series against the other really can kind of change the math about the way we think about the race. So um, that I think an Oklahoma state series win here would do that. I think it's not the worst matchup for TCU just because, you know, we talked about this when we talked about Oklahoma state, I don't know, back in early to mid March, I had just written about them being a pitching first outfit and, and that is really, continued um you know Parker Scott has had a really nice year Justin Campbell's been the revelation for Oklahoma State on the mound he's been the guy who you know it hasn't been Bryce Osmond it's been Justin Campbell as the second year guy who's really taken a big leap forward and announced himself as a a real dude on the mound for them but the, the offense for Oklahoma State just like by and large has not been particularly good 
Christian Encarnacio Strand, a, a Juco transfer with a ton of power has been what they needed him to be. Um, they've actually maybe even, you know, I don't know. They were by they, I mean, Josh holiday, but Oklahoma state more generally was kind of mum on what they expected from Nolan McLean. Who's a, you know, a, a two sport guy, you know, played quarterback on the football team. And they were kind of, like I said, mum on, on what you expect from him. Cause you just don't know what you're going to get from a guy who'd been splitting his time. And, and, you know, maybe he's a little more raw because he hasn't been so baseball focused and, and he's really been the second most consistent bat outside of and the other thing with him is he, uh, he could have been a pitcher for them too. There was, there was some right. discussion about would he be a two way and instead it's, it's been uh, it's been at the bat that, that's been the big thing. But when you, you know, you start to look at some of this stuff and Carson McCusker has been out of the lineup for huge stretches of the year. Alex Garcia veteran hasn't been very good. Caden Trinkle looked like a, like a superstar, a budding superstar in the big 12 last season. And he hasn't really been able to back that up. Um, so there's just a lot of little things offensively that have really conspired to make it to where Oklahoma State's lineup has, has just not been as good as, as I thought it would be. Now, the pitching has made up a lot of that slack. I feel like the pitching has been better than I expected it to be, and the lineup hasn't been quite as good. And maybe that's kind of put them in a space they were going to be in regardless. But So I think it's a decent matchup for a TCU team that needs to – or I should say once. Um, I think they can, they can win other ways. But if they're really if, – if this series goes the way they want it to, they're going to get linked out of their starters – and I think there's an opportunity against this Oklahoma State offense that has been inconsistent, that still strikes out a decent amount for them to get some link um, from, from guys like, you know, Crobe uh, and, and Russell Smith and, um, and what have you. So I, I think it's a pretty good matchup for TCU. I, I like their, their chances here, just given that matchup. Um, but, you know, you might not expect an Oklahoma State TCU series that runs might be at a premium, but that might be what we're dealing with this weekend. We talked last week, I talked last week about like, is what, what would TCU do if Texas Tech's offense got them off schedule on the mound? And uh, the answer was that they didn't have an answer for that on Sunday. Um, they were, they were out of pitching on Saturday and then they jumped out to a huge lead on Sunday. And there was, there was no coming back from that for, for TCU. And it was over after seven. That's not happening this weekend. I don't think if it does, that's a, a massive, massive development for Oklahoma State and maybe really forces us to rethink what they are. So yeah, I, I think you're I think you're right about this being a good matchup for TCU, particularly it being at home. Uh, it's not like either one of these teams has massive home road, sl- home road splits, but uh, to be back in Fort Worth after, uh, after what happened in Lubbock, I, I, I think is not insignificant for TCU. Joe, the one thing I did want to touch on here with TCU is that talked early in the season, you were a little unsure of how, what the lineup would be like, what, uh, you know, and I, I said, whatever the lineup is today, like, I don't think it'll be that way come April. Jim Schlossnagel has a lot of options here. He'll probably use them. That really hasn't come to pass, has it? I mean, they've, they've really been able to focus in on a much more consistent lineup than I certainly anticipate. Yeah, for sure. You know, they, they really have kind of, when you talk about at least their top seven or eight, they've, they've really focused in pretty quickly on, on who their, who their guys were. I mean, you, you don't see, you know, I use this example not because it's a comparable example, but just because I wrote about them this week, but you look at a team like, you know, the raging Cajuns, Louisiana, and they've got, you know, their entire stat sheet is guys that have, you know, 21 starts and 18 starts and 24 starts and 27 starts and nine starts and 12 starts and 13 starts. And that's not, 
this. Like, this is a pretty steady lineup. They've got some guys who will come in and out a little bit. I suspect, you know, given some of these start numbers from guys they expect to be big parts of it, maybe they've had some injuries along the way. Um, you know, those things are hard to track week to week in a, in a sport like this, so who knows. But, but yeah, it's and it, and the thing about it is, it's not like, I mean, I, maybe you could make the argument for Philip Sykes, you know, uh, given that, um, you know, he's, he's shown some, some doubles pop and, you know, he's been a really good on base guy and he's a guy who maybe we weren't as focused on coming into the season, but it's not like they've really had one guy come out and say, I'm a superstar here. I am like, I'm going to lead this offense. Um, it's really just been their top seven or eight guys have been pretty good in different ways. Uh, and that's been enough. So it's, it's kind of like what I expected, which was maybe there's not a lot of star power in this lineup, but I think they've, they're going to have a good number of guys who contribute. It's been that it just hasn't necessarily been the seven or eight guys I, I thought it would be. So that's kind of interesting, but it's a good lineup. Like, I mean, I was kind of worried about it three, four weeks ago and, and now I'm just much, much less. So like, I really do think it's a, it's a good group. All right, let's uh, let's move on here. Go to Conference USA, Southern Miss and uh, Louisiana Tech. But that's what we've got again this weekend in Ruston. Southern Miss returning the trip, and from just three weeks ago, Louisiana Tech won that series in Hattiesburg. They took three out of four. They are now ten and two in Conference USA, and they sure look like they're in control. Not only of the, the division there, but of the conference overall, we move them into the hosting line uh, in this week's projected field of 64. There's a lot on the table here for Louisiana Tech, and this is really one of the last significant hurdles. They will play Old Dominion, which is one of two teams, along with Charlotte, that are doing outstandingly in the East. Uh, they play Old Dominion on the last week of the regular season. That obviously will come after. Uh, host sites have been announced and may come after a point when uh, anyone can can catch LaTeX for a, a Conference USA title anyway. Um, we, we'll, we'll have to see about that. But this is a significant opportunity for Louisiana Tech. One last opportunity to make a really big impression uh, before the host sites are announced because playing Marshall and Middle Tennessee State's not going to move the needle a whole lot or FIU even frankly this year. Uh, so they, they need to take care of business in those, but this, this one is a, is a big one. And then obviously on the Southern Miss side, they're looking for revenge. They're looking to get back into the race and, you know, trying to, trying to stop Louisiana tech from, from running away with the division. So an interesting matchup here at the love shack. No doubt. I mean, Conference USA has really broken well for the league. And I say that in terms of Old Dominion, Charlotte, and Louisiana Tech have just dominated the competition by and large and separated themselves. And Southern Miss has two, with the exception, of course, of the La Tech series. So that's like a best case scenario for CUSA. You've got these four teams that kind of trade blows a little bit, but otherwise separate themselves and they kind of all hold each other up. And, and CUSA looks increasingly you know, we, we looked a few weeks ago and said this might be a four-bid league, and now it seems like it it just will be. You know, uh, a lot of things can happen, but the rest unless of... somebody falls apart, this exactly. is. And, like, I went to the point of, like, well, if they're four and, like, I mean, you could put them all on the two line. I, I don't think that they all will be on the two line. I mean, of the three teams that aren't Louisiana Tech, uh, I mean, I, I went looking to, to see if I one of the other teams should be on the bubble. 
And I think there's room for FAU if they get if they get together in the second half of the season, big if, but I think there's room for, for FAU to get to the bubble or even for San Antonio, especially because San Antonio has four games left against La Tech. It's kind of amazing. I mean, because four bids was about what at Conference USA's best, you know, pre-American conference, like that's about what they do was four bids. So it's amazing that this kind of stripped down version of CUSA has been able to do this. I think it's uh, a testament to the league. It's, it's kind of neat for, you know, um, for someone like me who geeks out on the mid-major stuff, like I think it's kind of cool. It's a little bit of a throwback that CUSA is doing this. So, um, so yeah, it's just, things have broken just right. You know, we've got those eight games in a row with ODU and, and Charlotte. And I think, you know, chances are that's a five to three one way or a four to four tie, you know, and, and that, that would be a pretty good result for, for, for the league anyway. So, I think the league might prefer that. You know, I, I thought we we just went through that with Wichita and Houston and the American. And I know, I don't think we talked about it on the podcast, but offline, I made similar references that like, uh, we'll probably just flip that result. And Wichita, that's just how it'll go. And like, it'll be four and four. And we still won't know what these teams are. And it wound up being Wichita seven to one. So like, I don't know, maybe that happens there. I don't know how good that would be for the league if it did, because whichever team got exposed there, I don't think that would say positive things about the rest of their resume. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it depends on what they're looking for too, right? Like if they want, if they want four teams, like the best thing is a four to four or a five to three, one way or the other there. You know, the other thing is that these RPIs are good enough for Charlotte in particular is like pushing 20 in the RPI. Like if they were to really rip off a seven and one or something against ODU, which I don't think would happen. Right. But like, I haven't done the full number crunch on this, but like, could you be talking about Charlotte also hosting? Like, I don't know. Um, that's a discussion for another day, but that would be the, maybe the flip side of that. Um, what I will say just on the field on this series, Southern Miss is swinging the bats better than the last time we talked or when we talked about this series three years yes. ago, they were hitting like 207. Um, they're now close to 250, although they did just get shut out by South Alabama on Tuesday. That's not great. Uh, but it is a better offense than what it was looking like. Some guys who they needed to really get going, like Gabe Montenegro and Danny Lynch, have gotten going in a, in a more positive direction. So it's looking more like the offense that we thought they were going to be. So uh, that has really kind of started to round into form. The pitching is still very good. Uh, I think this is going to be a competitive series. Um, you know, obviously Southern Miss feels like they – um, they probably feel like they need it. Um, you know, they probably feel like they're one of the better teams in the league and you're right. There's just dwindling opportunities for them to land these, these big body blows. And so this weekend is, is pretty big for them, I think. Yeah. I, uh, I'm interested to see that these were pretty tight games when they played in Hattiesburg. Uh, you know, so there, there's reason for optimism, despite the fact that, that Southern Miss lost a home series uh, you highlighted Danny Lynch and Gabe Montenegro. They've both been great in conference play. Montenegro's pushing 500 uh, as a batting average. Um, Lynch has five home runs already in 11 games in Conference USA. So those were two guys that I think I, I highlighted last time that they needed to get going. They've gotten going. Um, you know, so now they're, they're going to have to do it uh, on the road, but, but they're capable. And, you know, I, if you look at La Tech, I mean, we've talked about their offense before. It's old. It's veteran. They're good. Uh, what has stood out to me, and I mean, I think a lot of people right now, but like Jonathan Fincher is on a tear. He has been fantastic at the front of their rotation. Um, you know, he, he threw a shutout against Rice last week. 
in, in Conference USA, um, it, it's been great. It was great before then. Since giving up four runs to Arkansas over six innings a month ago, he's run off four straight quality starts and given up a total of three runs in, uh, what is that, like 32 innings. Uh, so that's pretty good. That's uh, that's definitely going to get the job done here. And, you know, he, he's just been uh, been sensational for them at the front of the rotation. And and uh, I, I don't think you can overlook his or overstate his his contribution to uh, to this law tech team, just getting them started off right every weekend. He's kind of a fun watch, too, because he's not he's not out there throwing the ball by people. He looks like he would. It's a big body. It's like, you know, six, what is it? Six, three, two forty. It's a big body, but he's throwing, you know, in the grand scheme of things, he's throwing, you know, fairly soft and, you know, he's, he's kind of just like spotting it up and mixing pitches and he's kind of crafty about it. Like he's, he's not a guy who's up there blowing it, blowing it by people. So he's, he's definitely got a, a he's got a little craftiness to him that you wouldn't expect if you, you first, you know, got to look at the body anyway. So he's kind of a fun watch, I think. Absolutely. All right. So that is, uh, those are my picks, Joe. Let's, uh, let's see what you got for, uh, for our fifth series to watch here on this week nine. All right. So one honorable mention, uh, Monmouth at Fairfield. I thought this was going to be your pick. You wrote about no, this. I've got another one. I've got another one in the, in the chamber, but uh, Monmouth at Fairfield, uh, two extremely good pitching teams. The Metro Atlantic tends to be a pitching league anyway. I think part of that is ballpark effects. Part of it is lack of physical lineups. Um, it's cold for, you know, even as they start conference play, typically it's pretty cold and kind of gross. So weather-wise, so I think there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, but these two teams do pitch really well, even on that scale. So that is, um, that is an interesting series. It's, it's for the top spot in the Metro Atlantic. And one thing I think is kind of cool about the Metro Atlantic this year is normally by the time this, that conference gets to conference play, they've all taken like just an absurd amount of losses. Like they'll, they'll go into conference play like three and 12 and then their, their records just never look right after that because they just take on so much water. So it is kind of nice to look at the Metro Atlantic standings and see teams with good records. I'm just not really used to that. So that, that is, is kind of nice. And I'm now kind of just really curious, like how good is like, is Fairfield going to go 37 and three or something? Like probably not, but um, I think that would be kind of neat for a, just from a, standpoint of when a Metro Atlantic team pops up in the field of 64 on selection Monday that like your average fan who just doesn't know any better is going to go like, Holy cow. Like that team is 35 and five, you know? Um, I think, so I think that that would be kind of neat. I think just that that doesn't really matter. The team is as good as it was going to be already, but um, it can kind of draw a little bit of extra notoriety to a team that that maybe deserves it. So anyway, uh, Monmouth at Fairfield, my actual choice is in the SOCON and that's Samford at Western Carolina for a couple of reasons. One is that Western Carolina is one of those teams that I think we're just going to have to kind of continue to have a dialogue about from an at-large perspective the rest of the year. I finally um, put them in the bubble officially. Yeah. I just don't think unless they, we talked about this earlier, like teams can play their way in and out from an RPI standpoint, but teams aren't just going to mysteriously drop at this point. So I think they're going to hang around. I think they've proven that they're good. They missed an opportunity last night. Um, they lost a 14 to 12 game in Tennessee that they could have could have easily won. That would have been extremely helpful. But they've won a series with Charlotte. Uh, that is helpful. Uh, they won a series with St. John's, which I think will be able to do enough in the Big East to keep their RPI in the top 100. Uh, we'll have to see on that. 
But regardless, I think this is a team that is going to hang around. It might be one of those weird teams where they're probably not the best team in the SOCON. I, I would be, maybe I'm not giving them enough credit, but I, I don't think they're going to win the SOCON. So it is going to be an interesting debate of like, let's say their RPI is 35, but they finish third in the SOCON. Will the committee take a good RPI team that finished third in that league um, that obviously wasn't the, the automatic bid? Um, that'll be an inter- interesting philosophical debate. That's part of the reason I bring it up is it's a team that I just don't think is going to drop. I looked at the Boydsworld.com's RPI needs report, which understand as I say this, it's a moving target. Obviously, the needs report changes as teams move up and down the RPI. But basically, before last night's result, they needed to win 15, 16, or 17 of their last 27 games to stay in the top 45 in the RPI. And that's pretty doable. If they're good enough to finish in the top few spots in the SOCON, they'll do that. So that's the target they're kind of trying to hit here, which is to say, I think it's a team that is going to be on the bubble all season long. So, um, but it is a good series just in general. Samford is leading the SOCON uh, 11 and one record so far. And I think what's notable about that to me is it speaks about how good Samford is. And I don't, I know I don't need to tell Teddy this. He's a, he's a, a, a Samford supporter like I am as just being a good program, but they, they're 11 and one and they really haven't played that well. Like, honestly, I mean, they, they obviously played well enough, but you look at some of the things here and, you know, offensively, it's, it's just been an okay offense. I thought it would be a, a very good offense. Um, you know, and, and some of that is like nitpicks, like, well, Sonny DTR is hitting for some power, but he's hitting below 300. And I thought he'd be a well over 300 hitter. Other things are like, um, you know, Brooks Carlson hitting 200 and, you know, furthermore, Brooks Carlson has been kind of used in DH duty this year because he's really struggled defensively. And so I think that's probably limited their lineup that they're, they're using Brooks Carlson in a, in a DH role, as opposed to, you know, being able to use him in the field more often. And then the mound outside of Samuel Strickland, who, again, you can kind of nitpick and say his numbers are pretty good, but they aren't as good as I, I maybe thought they would be. I mean, opponents are hitting 320 against him. The ERA is pretty good at 361, but this is a, a talented pitching staff and they have a team ERA over six. And so somehow they have been able to parlay that still into an 11 and one record. So um, now some of that, of course, you have to imagine is non-conference stuff. Yeah. I think when you, over. when you click over to the conference portion of this, things improve because they played very aggressive non-conference scheduling and it did not work out for them because they didn't win any of the games. Yeah. But, and, and that's, that's going to cost them because if there was a SOCON team coming into the year that I thought, like, okay, they can get into the non-conference mix. It would have been Samford, uh, but they played at Florida. They played at AM, and they played, they, they did not win any of those games on a weekend. Then they had Mississippi State in a midweek, lost it. And uh, they, they just, yeah, this yesterday, Alabama lost it. Uh, and a lot of these games haven't been close. So it's not... They, like it, it's it's pretty clear that they're not as good as SEC teams. No shame in that. Uh, but from a from a standpoint of of stats, uh, I, I think that that really really hurt them. Uh, when when you start looking at things that they've done as they've gone eleven and one, things get a little bit better. But I mean, Brooks Carlson hasn't been the Brooks Carlson that he was a year ago when he was outstanding for them. Um, you know, on the pitching side, they've they've been a little bit better, uh, a lot bit better, I guess, in conference than out of conference. But they, you know, Jesse McCord 
has been good for them. And I, I think we mentioned Samford on a previous podcast. If you go back a couple months and I talked about how Samford last year dealt with a lot of injuries on the pitching staff and, you know, they had to bring in new guys into new roles and um, this year now getting some of those guys who were injured back would, would be a significant thing for them. And McCord is one of those guys and having him back in the rotation has, has been a big plus, but you know, Strickland hasn't been, I, when Sam Strickland was a freshman, I thought he was going to be amazing by this time. And he is just very good. He's a, he's a really good SOCOM pitcher. He's not maybe made that, that next leap and, you know, that's fine. It happens. Um, but, but with McCord and Strickland and, and Hester hasn't been uh, what they would have hoped. I don't think as a, as a starter, but that's a good starting rotation. They've got some good bats. I like what this team is. Uh, and, and obviously they've been playing really well in, uh, in, in SoCon action uh, on the Western Carolina side. This is a team that like historically has been one of the better teams in the SoCon. They're not that far removed from, uh, an NCAA tournament appearance. I know they went in 16. I don't think they've been since then. And they're like, like we talked about, they're, they're in this weird space where they're in the top 40 in RPI and you have to take them seriously as a bubble team at this point, especially because they have that series win at Charlotte. But this weekend is huge. And then in two weeks, I think it is, or three weeks, they play Mercer again at home. They need to win at least one of those series. Mercer uh, the, the SOCON split into, into divisions and Mercer is currently leading the other division and, and looks to be pretty solid as you would expect Mercer to be. If Western Carolina is going to stay in at-large contention, they need to prove that they are one of the two best teams in the SOCON. And that is going to entail winning at least one of these series. They need to win four of these games against Samford and Mercer. And obviously that starts here this weekend against Samford. Um, you know, they, then they'll have to move on to Mercer when, when they get there, but that is going to be critical for them. It's a, it's an offensive environment out there in Cullowee. It's a, it's a pretty good offensive team. Justice Bigby has, you know, he's just been a really consistent hitter, really high end hitter in the SOCON for a while now. Uh, and, and they have, they have a whole lineup of guys that, that can hurt you. Um, you know, they Luke Robinson is sitting on eight home runs uh, which is a couple ahead of Big B for the team lead. They're hitting, they're hitting it well as a team. Uh, they really took it to St. John's. That was kind of when I woke up and, and realized how good the team was when they absolutely battered uh, St. John's pitching the week after they uh, they beat Charlotte. Like those those five uh, five wins there against Charlotte and St. John's really forced me to be like, okay, uh, Western Carolina, I, I need to. I need to get a little more hip to, uh, to the Catamounts and uh, you know, they've continued to play well. Uh, it's going to be offensive. That's the way the SoCon is. That's the way Kaluuya is. Uh, but I, I think that uh, these are two pretty good offenses going at it. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely an intriguing series here in the SoCon. Yeah. It's good to call them the, you know, the, the, the conference non-conference difference in, in Samford is something I hadn't really fully accounted for. Um, you know, there's still some truisms about, you know, the individual pitchers, not hit, but certainly things have been trending upwards for, for Samford. And I think it's part of the reason why this is a, this weekend is a big test though, too, is because, you know, you look at, at what Samford now, you look at that 11 and one and, you know, at the time they swept UNC Greensboro, that looked like a pretty good series, but UNC Greensboro, like quickly, 
you know, has, has really struggled this year and gotten underwater. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but they've also played, you know, ETSU and VMI in the Citadel. And so I'm not saying the 11 and one by any stretch is fraudulent, but they still have in front of them this series, then they play Mercer, then they play Wofford the next three weekends. So like, this is the toughest stretch of the season for Samford and, and SoCon play. And so it's, it's the beginning of a, a big test for them. Uh, we'll have to settle this when we do our top 50 names list here sometime in the next few weeks, Joe, but uh, Samford has Towns King and DBU has River Towns. And uh, I, I want to get an early read on where you stand, or Rivertown, excuse me, for, for DBU. I want to get an early read on where you stand on Rivertown versus Towns Kane. Well, first of all, have we ever seen them in the same place at the same time? Because that, <laughs> that feels like witness protection program, and they messed up and gave them names that were like slightly too similar. Or like in um, you know, MLB The Show when it generates names for the minor leaguers and you end up with you know, names that are kind of like uh, – just almost too random to be real, but, but here they are. Um, I'm going to go with river town, right? That's one of them. River town. I feel yeah, like river I'm going to mess up, mess up like which first name goes with which last name. <laughs> I'm going to go with river town because that's like two geographic things, you know, like two things you can find on a map river town. Yeah. I, the, I, I wish town's first name was town. So it could be town King. Uh, I just think that would be great. Uh, Towns King, very good as well, but to, to be Town King, yeah, I'm, I'm the king of this town. Like, I, I, I might, I might prefer that. I, I don't know that there's a wrong answer here. And, and Samford also has Hamp Skinner, uh, so Samford mm. definitely going to rank highly on the the all names team. I, I can guarantee that. Yeah, it's it's a good group for sure. It's uh, this is this is a good good group to uh, to, to choose. They've got, I mean, they've also got an Ayrton Schaefer, like first name Ayrton, A Y R T O N. That's a pretty unique first name. I mean, that's not gonna, that's not going to like make the, the final cut. But if that's like where you're starting as a baseline here, it's pretty good. They've also got a uh, the fact show. that that's number three. Like, I mean, that that's just indicative of how good the, the the names are on this team overall. Because on a lot of teams, I would be highlighting that as like, oh, this is the best they've got. But no, like here, that's like, well, okay. Here are yeah. a couple others that are better than that, though. Yeah, for sure. Well, well done by uh, Samford in their recruiting operation. <laughs> Uh, in all seriousness, an important SOCON series and an important series, uh, again, for Western Carolina as it relates to its uh, potential at-large hopes. All right, so a lot to watch around the country this weekend. We will have it all covered for you over at BaseballAmerica.com. You can follow us on Twitter for more analysis. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And then we will be back here next Monday with another edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us and hit that follow button and it'll go right to your phone there on Monday when we post the recap of what we hope to be an exciting week nine around the country. Until then, I want to thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this edition of the Baseball America College podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time here on the Baseball America College Podcast.